1: Right now, our friends at Princeton University
0: Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, 50
1: at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. All right, hello everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bennett Kerber, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Thomas Aiello about his new book, Dixie Ball, Race and Professional Basketball in the Deep South, 1947 to 1979. Uh, Tom, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And
1: and, and Tom, before we get going, I was wondering if you could uh, begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, I um I do sports along with several other things. I, uh, but it has always been one of uh, my passions. I um, have been fortunate enough to write about um, baseball and tennis and football and a variety of other sports and their intersections with race, particularly in the South. And basketball has always been, uh, I guess, one of my um, great loves that I had never written about. And um, I was happy to be able to get around to it.
1: Well, I, you're, you're talking to a, um, an ardent uh, New Orleans Pelicans fan. So I, the, the topic is also close to my heart. <laughs> uh, just, just ready for Zion to come back. But um, that's another right. conversation. That is... um, so, um, yeah, how, how did you kind of settle on um, Dixie Ball as a project? I'm curious as to what the origins of the project were.
0: Well, it's interesting, you know, even though I'm from Louisiana, um, I've lived in Georgia for the past 13 years. And even before that, when I grew up in Louisiana, we didn't have a basketball team. The Southern basketball team were the Hawks. And so I am a Hawks fan. And it always struck me uh, as interesting that a place like the South that was the last to get professional sports, specifically because of its racial mores. Finally, ended up getting um, a team in a league that was so associated with blackness, and how that came about, especially when we're still in the 1960s, and and what that was all about. And so, I first began investigating how the NBA moved to the Deep South and um, and the Hawks, and and how the Hawks ended up coming to Atlanta, and then in that process, deciding that since the NBA wasn't the only competitive league at the time, and the South had already experienced some kind of professional basketball prior, in leagues that were even more associated with blackness, how did that come about? And that led me to New Orleans. And so um, it it was just a kind of a a process of breadcrumbs that kept leading me to different areas to try to figure out um, how uh, such a racially polarized place ended up accepting, if not Totally adopting, um, uh, essentially black teams, and and what exactly that meant, and and how that ended up affecting both the regions and the teams themselves.
1: Well, yeah, you you kind of mentioned that this in your answer and throughout the book that by the mid nineteen sixties uh, basketball was largely perceived as a black sport and professional basketball as a black league. Um, so if if we think about early professional basketball, I, I would guess that it wasn't perceived this way. So um, how was it perceived in the early days of professional basketball? And how did it transition to becoming a black sport and a black league?
0: Right. Well, you know, the early days of basketball was part of the whole muscular Christianity kind of movement, wherein it was designed not to be competitive at all. But as soon as it became competitive, it, it, it reached beyond the bounds of its founders very quickly. And in professional basketball, even though it isn't talked about as much as it is in baseball, there were the Negro Leagues of basketball. So pro basketball always had a Black presence um, and major Black teams that began playing very, very early um, in the 19-teens and 20s. Um, that were professional, but they were always in the Northeast. And basketball, largely because it is played in already existing gymnasia and because unlike baseball and football, you do not need to purchase equipment to be able to do it, it largely became a game that was associated with urbanity. And because of that, it was played largely by immigrant groups and um, uh uh, in black neighborhoods and things like that. It was early associated with the YMCA. And so it was in- associated with both a lower middle and upper lower class um, demographic that had a chance to play these games that allowed them to play essentially for free. And that was housed in places that only had gymnasia, uh, which was places with the kind of infrastructure like northern urban cities uh, that had uh, available gymnasia for people to play. And so even early on, it was associated with um, immigration and difference. One of the most prominent um, early professional basketball teams that wasn't black was the Philadelphia SPHA's a Jewish team. And so it was associated with Jewishness and immigration and blackness. And the exception to that, of course, is that basketball simultaneously began catching on at colleges. Um, It it was founded, of course, legendarily at at Springfield uh, with James Naismith, and they were essentially a repository for creating physical education leaders that they sent out to universities all over the country. And so basketball starts to get its quote unquote rural presence um, in that vein, that it's associated specifically with collegiate athletes. And so you have these two very distinct tracks of basketball. One is very white and associated with the educated upper middle class that gets to colleges in um, flyover states and southern states and places like that. The other is a more professional game that is played in urban areas with a, a largely immigrant population. Uh, still very segregated, but, but everybody has in their own way a chance to play That development over the years in professional basketball um, ends up largely developing separate from the college game. And so as the pro game develops, it does begin as a segregated game, but there's always a Black presence in it. Um, The NBA itself is created out of a couple of different professional leagues, a merger in the immediate post-World War II period. And almost immediately... Um, it begins to take on black players, partially because we we were. It's coming right after Jackie Robinson and right after the um, desegregation of the military, but also because it's only in places where there has always been this racial and migrant presence in the game, and so it doesn't seem as strange in basketball to be able to include those players. And if you're only playing in the Northeast that is going to be more accepted than it might be, uh, let's just say in the South. And so as the game develops in the 1950s and into the 1960s, slowly but surely more and more of the players are black. Um, Really the only thing keeping a large white presence in the game is that many of these teams are pulling their players from those collegiate teams on the other track of basketball development, which is largely producing white stars. But with that exception, the vast majority of the new players coming into the league are racial minorities. And the stars of those teams start to become racial minorities. And the difference between basketball and, let's say, football and baseball, the other two sports that were competing for airtime at the time, is that in basketball, you're sitting right next to the players. They're not wearing hats and they're not wearing helmets, and you're right up next to them. And so even though we make a lot of what's going on racially in baseball and football— Race was more of an abstract concept to the people sitting in the upper deck at those games, whereas in basketball, you're right there. You see all the players. And so as the game gets more black players, it will associate the game specifically with blackness in a way that doesn't necessarily happen, even as football and baseball are similarly taking on a lot of immigrant and racially uh, racial minority players because of the closeness of the fans, because of the lack of hats and helmets and because of those kinds of things. And so um, blackness becomes kind of part and parcel of the game. And I have to tell you that the NBA was very cognizant of this. And as all the NBA leaders were white, were worried about it. Um, black players were taken on in the NBA because they teams wanted the best players available. But the owners and the leagues themselves, that doesn't absolve them of somehow uh, They aren't racist, or they're they're more forward-thinking on race than the other leagues. They're just as racist as everybody else, and they worry about this. They worry about their bottom line, about white attendance, because white people have the most money, and they want to make sure that those people are coming to the games. It is uh, rumored before, this is all happening before the South gets professional basketball, but it is rumored, and there's pretty good evidence, even though we don't have an exact smoking gun, that the reason why the NBA went from an 11-player team to a 12-player team is that uh, there was a directive that said we need an extra player on the bench that is a white guy so that no matter how many um, black players we have, that fans will always be able to see at least one white player on the team. And whether or not that is the actual reason why they expanded to 12, and of course today they're at 15, uh, whether that's the reason they expanded to 12 or not in the early 1960s that was the belief and that colored a lot of the way people saw the nba and so basketball had by the early to mid-1960s very much become associated with race in addition it, oh go ahead
1: Oh, yeah i i found that fascinating because i was reading the statistic in your book right that i think it was 1964 or 65 um, there was roughly 47 and a half percent of players were black, um, which meant that, I guess, technically they were still a minority. But to your point, and I think that was a fascinating observation on your part, the, 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 how visible the players were um, made that 47 and a half percent much more visible uh, to the American public to make it become a black sport, which I, which I found to be a very astute observation and one I never thought about.
0: It's true, you know, and and on top of that, they're also visible outside of the game in a way that other players aren't. Jackie Robinson is amazing and important and, and a great guy, but at the same time, he was coached not to get involved in a lot of things outside of baseball, very specifically for that reason. Meanwhile, as his career is starting to wind down, Bill Russell's is starting to wind up, and Bill Russell absolutely goes out and marches in civil rights marches. He actively talks about these things. All of the NBA teams, just like the Major League Baseball teams, do barnstorms through the South as preseason games, and they are forced to play in segregated stadiums, and many of them refuse. Bill Russell among them. And basketball players, because they're right next to the fans, because... It is so easy for the fans who love to taunt the players to be able to directly speak to them and give them all the racial epithets that you can imagine that basketball fans would give opposing black players that they didn't like in an era where they can get away with that and not get beaten up or arrested, are going to do that all the time. And so they have their race thrown at them every day in a way that football players and baseball players don't, because Jackie Robinson. While he experienced all kinds of horrible threats, he was largely experiencing them from three rows of a giant stadium because he couldn't hear anybody else. I mean, it was just separate. In basketball, you hear everybody and visiting uh, arenas are going to use anything they can to rile you up and to try to throw you off your game. Race was one of those. And so it is going to radicalize NBA players in a way that other sports didn't have that kind of radicalization. And so not only do we see them physically uh, as black, but because of the prominent players who are black, who are gonna go out and talk about these issues regularly and be recruited by various civil rights organizations specifically for that purpose, that is only going to add to the kind of um, uh, scarlet letter of race that the NBA ends up finding itself holding. By the, the
1: mid 1960s. Well, and, and you mentioned um, Bill Russell, but I, you know, I was fascinated by a story um, that I, I had never heard before that you mentioned in the first chapter. Uh, a prominent name emerges alongside Bill Russell, and that's Hall of Famer Elgin Baylor. Right. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell the readers more about his influential stand against segregation um, that ultimately, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it seems hard it forced the NBA's hand. Um, to kind of make a, a more explicit anti-segregation policy during the civil rights era, maybe one that they wouldn't have been forced to make if it hadn't been for, for Baylor's um, activism.
0: Absolutely, Elgin Baylor is is going to be one of the key players in a lot of that. Um, he was a star for the Lakers. He wasn't uh, he wasn't quite Bill Russell level, but he was still the star of you know, one of the core foundational franchises of the NBA. And the Lakers, like so many other teams, barnstormed as a preseason through the South. And in one game in particular in West Virginia, um, he refuses to play in a segregated arena. Um, And actually in West Virginia, they were forced to have dual hotels for the white players and the black players. And so by the time, uh, even before they get to the arena, Elgin Baylor is out. He is not doing this because he doesn't have to worry about this in the North. He does have to deal with racism from fans. He does have to deal with all those other things. But this kind of cartoonish segregation that we have in the South is so beyond the pale for him that he refuses to be a part of it. He leaves. They were going to play the Celtics. Bill Russell very much supports him and argues, I'm with you on this. And he he leaves. And so Baylor starts to argue, I will not do this anymore. We are not going back to the South unless we have assurances that we can play in integrated stadiums and that our team can stay at the same hotel. Um, And it really does force the NBA's hand to say, okay, well, maybe this isn't the best idea for a kind of spring training of course, the model had always been to play in the South because that's what baseball had established. Football did much the same thing. They went and played preseason in the South because there were no professional teams down there. It was sunny and nice. But basketball doesn't need sunny and nice. Basketball just needs arenas. It's not like baseball. You don't have to wait for good weather in February to have a spring training. That's not the kind of thing that the NBA needs. And so it is really going to force their hand and move basketball further away from Southern markets, specifically because white fans had treated Black players so poorly on those on those uh, trips. And I should say, too, that... One of the other reasons why they did that is because since the 1930s, there had been black pro basketball running through the South. The Globetrotters had started in the 30s coming to the South. They had experienced lots of ugly stuff, but everybody was kind of in on the whole deal with the Harlem Globetrotters. And so they were able to do that and largely... um, be supported because the games that were being played with the Harlem Globetrotters tended not to be um, the kinds of contests that would force people to yell and scream and get bloodthirsty. And on top of that, since all of the players were black, um there were never any hotel issues because they were all only staying in one place. And so there had been a long tradition of black barnstorming uh, in the South where white people came to black basketball games. That was a thing going back all the way to the Depression. But uh, but this was different. These were integrated professional teams that people had a stake in. Uh, it wasn't considered uh, a work um, uh, like the Harlem Globetrotters games often were. And so. um Elgin Baylor is going to be a, a real force for change, whereas people like Bill Russell largely spent their political capital outside of the actual game. Other players like Baylor are going to use their political capital inside of it. Elgin Baylor does not have the national profile that Russell does to be able to make positive civil rights gains outside of his sport, but he is such a giant within the sport that he's able to use that political capital there to help ensure that the NBA stand by its black players. Despite the fact that the Board of Governors is littered with uh, rich and quasi-racist white people, they understand that it is players like Baylor that Affect their bottom line, and he is able to really, in an age before um, the National Basketball Association Players Union Players Association, um, to be able to really leverage a version of that kind of thing to be able to get positive change for Black players.
1: Fascinating, and and yeah, I again that was that was a um, a surprising but but impactful story that I came across in that first chapter, and and then. Um, Tom and I were, were chatting before the interview and, and found out we're both Louisiana natives. Um, so so as, as a Louisiana native and, and just a student of history, um, I know that New Orleans has had a fraught relationship um, with, with race relations, going as far back as being a key node in the American slave trade, the site where the Plessy versus Ferguson case um, originated, instituting Jim Crow segregation in the South. So it was rather surprising to learn that it was the location of the first uh, deep south pro basketball team and and I'm curious if you could share with the readers how did that team come to New Orleans, and why was Morton downey jr. Uh, a surprising player in the establishment of this team another another fact and maybe you might want to uh, for those that don 't know who Morton Downey Jr. is, you may want to introduce him as well too.
0: right you know it's interesting I mean it's not only New Orleans has fraught racial history from long ago I mean they get pro basketball. just a couple of years after Ruby Bridges makes that walk to integrate schools, I mean in New Orleans. I mean it is I mean it is right in their face at the time. And yet, of course, New Orleans, um, unlike so many other southern cities, is this kind of metropolitan, cosmopolitan place with people from all over the world who live there because of the port and because of the business development that exists there. And it does draw major corporations, especially those who want to sell to the Caribbean and Latin America. And so it's going to bring um, a relatively influential and relatively wealthy non-native population who are coming from other parts of the country to take white-collar jobs um, in New Orleans. Among them was Morton Downey Jr. Um, Morton Downey Sr. was an incredibly famous singer and sometimes actor. Morton Downey uh, was long an entertainer in the country and was a very famous name. Morton Downey Jr. will become one of those famous names, but at the time he was just working he was just an employee he was trying to break out of his father's kind of shadow he did sing some he did try his hand at recording he didn't really have the success of his father and so he was working an office job i mean he was a a regular player but um but as one of these um, imports to the city He really liked everybody who's ever lived in New Orleans, likes living in New Orleans. And so he very much liked it and wanted to kind of contribute to the city. He also thought this would help him in his his kind of business career and kind of political standing in the city if he could somehow manage to help bring sports to the city Um, and decides that the easiest way to do that would be basketball. Of course, basketball, unlike baseball that requires you to have 25 players in a giant stadium, unlike football that requires you to have 56 players in a giant stadium, basketball just requires you to have a gym and 10 guys. And so this seemed like the best kind of course of action. And so uh, at the time... Uh, he considers that he's going to try to get an NBA team. Uh, he goes through negotiations. Actually, he tries to get the the Hawks um, before they end up going to Atlanta. That fails. And so luckily for him, there is a rival league that is uh, – developing at the time, the American Basketball Association, and they are looking for new markets. And um, they are trying to do what the American League did at the National League in baseball back in the 19th century, and that is to create a rival that will force some kind of a merger to make money and... If you're going to do that, it doesn't behoove you to put your teams in markets where the NBA already is. You want to show that you have value added that could make a merger beneficial. And so you're looking for virgin markets that could eventually give you an inroad to the NBA. New Orleans is a great place for that because it is a southern city, but it is unlike other Southern cities because it is so cosmopolitan and because it has historically always had a large and predominantly wealthy free Black population, even in its worst days of slavery, uh, which makes it fundamentally unique in the South. Um, it It is almost as Caribbean as it is Southern in many ways. And so This seemed like a viable option for the ABA. He was able to negotiate to bring um, uh, an expansion team, I should say an expansion team, but an expansion in the expansion league. I mean, we are essentially, New Orleans was a foundational member of the original ABA. um, And he brings the New Orleans Buccaneers to the city. I should say, though, by the time the New Orleans Buccaneers, uh, the South's first professional basketball team, actually begins play, Morton Downey Jr. is gone. He never sticks around to see any games. He leaves and goes back to New York, where he is from. Eventually, uh, in the late 70s and early 1980s, he will end up creating a very influential right-wing talk show, the Morton Downey Jr. show, uh, where he will become— Uh, kind of one of the first modern versions of the kind of right-wing, angry, white man, I hate everybody kind of talk that we see on AM radio today or that we see on kind of various political uh, TV channels. He really sets a mold for a lot of that. Um, and becomes this very influential guy in New York as a TV personality, taking on very controversial topics and supporting radical right wing politicians and uh, doing things like that. So his life takes a very stark turn uh, well after the Buccaneers leave. And when people think of Morton Downey Jr. today, they don't think of the Buccaneers and they often don't even think of his father. They think of the Morton Downey Jr. show, a show that ended up. Uh, so, I mean, there are still legacies of it today. I think a lot of our listeners might be familiar with um would be a good example of that? Uh, how about Reverend Al Sharpton, uh, who might be a familiar name to people? Um, he got his start on the Morton Downey Jr. show, obviously, as an antagonist to more, I mean, not not supporting his views, but uh, fighting against them and being on that show. And that's how he got his name. Um, and so he becomes very influential in that regard. At the time, though, he's creating this basketball team in New Orleans. He's just this white-collar worker who has a famous dad and some dreams of contributing to the city where he lives. And for all the problematic nature of Morton Downey Jr.'s life, um, he really does, through all evidence that we have, seem to be doing this for the right reasons. Um, He really does seem, he has no problem that the fact that the ABA is going to try to differentiate itself from the NBA by being overtly racial, it is going to celebrate its black players. It is going to bring a style of play that looks far more like the Negro leagues of the 1920s that were playing in the cotton club and places like that, the Harlem Renaissance teams and all of that. Um, and he's totally cool with that. Um, in this phase of his life, he is very open to that. He even talks about um, bringing integrated professional sports to the south as being a good thing. Um, and so the Morton Downey Jr. of the early mid 1960s is not the Morton Downey Jr that you may be familiar with if you are um, if you grew up uh, with uh, talk TV in the 1980s.
1: Yeah, that and that was probably that chapter. You, you actually include many stories where um Morton Downey Jr. is 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 pro integration, actually kind of standing against segregation. Um, which again, yeah, the nineteen eighties version that seems
0: complete completely different. <laughs> we'll go into restaurants that are segregated with black players, and when they get talked to, he storms out, he threatens to get the restaurant shut down. I mean, he is doing I think everything we would hope a Southern businessman would do in the 1960s, he does not seem like the caricature that he becomes later on in life because um, he sees this kind of interest in his team as being something that is bigger than um, I guess what will become his later political proclivities.
1: Well, in the next chapter, you kind of switch focus to Atlanta. um, And specifically your team, the Atlanta Hawks, it sounds like, um, that whenever they show up, um, it, but I, I, like, you made a really good point that the, the standard narrative of, of Atlanta, uh, pro sports and integrated sports is that, um, the move of the Milwaukee Braves to Atlanta and their star player, Hank Aaron, um, it helped kind of pave the way for, for pro football and then pro basketball in Atlanta. However, you note that, um, while this, you don't like counter the narrative, you, you said it kind of overlooks, um, The unique challenge facing pro basketball when it moved into a Sunbelt city or especially a deep south city. Um, And I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that a little bit of why why basketball is partially different. I'm guessing it has something to do with with what you were talking about earlier, uh, the perception of the black sport.
0: The perception of the Black sport. And also it, it, it was, I think, specific to the Atlanta market. Atlanta had always called and still actually calls itself the city too busy to hate. Um, it, um, it was early, um, an early integrator uh, by comparison, of course, the sit-ins largely took hold in atlanta because we have the atlanta university center with a kind of cluster of hbcus that is going to really work at the sit-in movement in atlanta and it's going to work and atlanta is largely going to desegregate very quickly um even before birmingham in 63 shows them what a bad idea not integrating is they very much see themselves as the they want to become the south's major city it's it's always it's always uh, hard for people to imagine that, you know, in the antebellum era, Atlanta is nothing. I mean, it is nothing. Macon is the big city here in Georgia. Uh, it is not. Uh, it is not Atlanta. Atlanta is is trying to become something uh, in the South that it had never been before, and so they've always kind of marketed themselves as too busy to hate. Now, of course, we know that is not true. Uh, Atlanta uh, is is very much perfectly willing to hate, um, and still very much is. But because it had Auburn Avenue, um, essentially the black business district in Atlanta that becomes one of the wealthiest places uh, in the hemisphere for uh, minority business people. And because it does desegregate so early, not because of altruism, but because of a fear of losing money, that it does have this reputation. And so if you're gonna take on Sports, and you're going to argue that you have somehow transcended race, which of course they haven't, but which that's the image you want to show. Uh, you need more than Hank Aaron. Uh, you need you need to kind of embody and say, "Well, we want to be the first city in the South to have all three major professional sports, and that includes the one that is the black sport." and And so, getting the NBA. Seems like the next logical step along the way for uh, Atlanta, and and that's exactly what they're going to do.
1: And and what's the the distinction between how the ownership um, constructs the team and the New Orleans Buccaneers and the ABA, and then the Atlantic Hawks is, is kind of they take a different approach, right? And how they decide to construct the respective teams. So I was wondering if you could tell us. Um, what those different approaches were in the makeup of the teams and, and how did the Hawks approach actually lead um, to its beginnings as a troubled and unsuccessful franchise um, largely until the 1980s?
0: Oh man. Uh, Right. So the, the Hawks are actually the last all white team. This is our one claim to fame, the last all white team to win the NBA championship. Uh, Not a, not a great stat. Uh, That was back when they were the St. Louis Hawks. And, The benefits of bringing a team from another city is that you have an established team already. You don't have to draft all new players. You can be competitive right away versus getting an expansion franchise where you have to kind of start from scratch and expect losing. And it was the dream of Atlanta to bring in a team that already existed for that reason. And they didn't just bring in any team. We might associate, unfortunately, the Atlanta Hawks with losing a lot, even though three quarters of the NBA have houses in Atlanta, we can't seem to get them to play for the team there. That wasn't always the case. The great Western team wasn't the Lakers in the 1950s and 60s. It was the Hawks. The Hawks always played in the Western Conference. They were in St. Louis before that. They were in in the tri-cities of Moline, Illinois. They were always in the Western Division. And so when the Celtics are winning 11 championships in a row, more than half the time, they're playing against the Hawks in the finals. It wasn't Hawks. It wasn't uh, Celtics-Lakers. It was Celtics-Hawks. And so when Atlanta is able to bring them Uh, largely because of a stadium dispute in Atlanta. Uh, Their owner, Leo Kerner was losing money and wanted a new stadium. They had built a new stadium for their, for St. Louis had built a new stadium for their expansion NHL team. uh, And he wasn't getting one. And he was very upset about that. And so he decided to sell and get out of the game. To get a team to come to the city that isn't an expansion team, And isn't kind of an also-ran that somebody is selling because they suck. He's getting one of the greatest teams in basketball. Its stars were Lenny Wilkins and Bob Pettit. I mean, it it had major players. It had uh, incredible success. And even though it hadn't won a championship since the 50s, that is only because the Celtics were so good. It was always considered to be the second-best franchise in the NBA in the 50s and 60s. And so this was really a gift. The problem for the for Atlanta was that to sell out a basketball arena is very different than selling out other arenas. We have, um, a, a, again, that closeness to the players. We're going to have a lot of black players. We're going to have a lot of white fans. And we've got to sell... I guess, 45 dates a year to try to get enough money to make this valuable. Before they bring in the Hawks, they realize that even though they're going to call them the Atlanta Hawks, that they need a lot of Georgians in general to be supportive of the team and to come to the games. And so what they would do is they would go around to Kiwanis Clubs and uh, other kinds of local Better Business Bureau meetings and hold these kind of pseudo-rallies to get people on board that we're gonna get pro basketball, we're gonna have the Hawks. And every single time they do that, when they get to the question and answer period, the very first question that is asked uniformly is, do you have any white players? That is the number one question that they get. And they know that this is gonna be a problem. The great star of the Hawks for the longest time had been Bob Pettit, a white guy from LSU, Uh, Somebody who represented uh, the white South and the SEC, the two most important entities for most white people in the region. And yet he was old at this point. I mean, he was largely, he had had run his course. And so the, the main young stars of the team were all black. And they knew coming in, this was going to be an issue for them. It wasn't an issue in New Orleans, largely for two reasons. First, there wasn't that expectation uh, of success that we had seen with Atlanta. They didn't have a known quantity. They were just getting players. They were kind of redrafting players. Uh, It was an expansion franchise. They weren't building their own massive arena. They were going to play at Loyola Fieldhouse, uh, where Loyola New Orleans played its basketball. The the ABA was going to be a, a slower build. And it didn't have this kind of stamp of blackness that the Hawks had already because of the success of their black players like Lenny Wilkins, Pogo Joe Caldwell, people like that. At the same time, New Orleans had a long history of uh, black entrepreneurship. There were going to be black players at all, uh, black fans at all of those games because there was black money in New Orleans in a way that there wasn't in let's say, Metro Atlanta, outside of the city in Cobb County. And so they didn't have to worry about those same kinds of issues. And so when the Hawks come to Atlanta and they find that people aren't coming as much to the games as they were hoping, Atlanta, the ownership in Atlanta very much deliberately decides that attendance is not going to be based here on wins and losses as we expect that it would be or should be in professional sports. Instead, it is going to be based on the ability of our white fans to see people who look like them playing on the court. And so they start almost immediately dismantling one of the greatest basketball teams of all time and trading away all their great black players and largely trading them for multiple white players, most of whom played at SEC schools, and they want white SEC players to come in to people the roster because people will know them, they will, they will like them, and they will be supportive of that. And that's, that was the strategy. Uh, and it killed the Hawks. But ultimately, I mean, the one benefit it gave them a couple of years into their Atlanta run was that it gave them really high draft picks. And it allowed them to get, uh, you know, their next Bob Pettit, uh, the ultimate great white hope, uh, the ultimate white Southern uh, SEC star, uh, Pistol Pete Maravich, um, which was probably not the, the best strategic draft pick, but was a flashy white superstar from not technically from the South, but from a Southern university. And this becomes the goal of everything that they do. We are going to make this team as white as we can to sell tickets. And it, we're, you know, I mean, we, some people would argue that we still suffer from, from those problems today. Um, yeah, it doesn't go great. Yeah,
1: and it's it's interesting because uh, you kind of conclude with um, the move away from Pistol Pete Maravich, who is obviously a great player, but said what kind of helps bring that Atlanta Hawks out of that mediocrity and that that kind of um, long array of of lack of success was that they finally invest in, in Dominique Wilkins. Is um, and in some ways he was the perfect African American star athlete for Atlanta in the nineteen eighties, and I was wondering if you could explain why Dominique Wilkins kind of meshes
0: perfectly with Atlanta. That's during right. That time. I mean, Dominique Wilkins was built for that role specifically because he was from UGA. I mean, he was a Georgia Bulldog. And so uh, white Georgians had long been conditioned to support the Georgia Bulldogs no matter what. And so when they came to watch Dominique Wilkins, they weren't watching a black player they were watching a georgia bulldog. and so to have a transcendent star like wilkins that can be accepted without having to negotiate racial mores simply because of where he went to school allowed them to be able to comfortably build around a black player. and of course ultimately pretty soon after that they will bring on uh Uh, a variety of other black players, Spud Webb. Uh, They will get a black coach in Lenny Wilkins. The story there is even more fascinating because Lenny Wilkins had been on that St. Louis Hawks team that was so good and refused. Uh, He demanded a trade because he would not go play in Atlanta because he knew how racist it was. But after Dominique, they're able to bring back Lenny Wilkins into the fold as the coach and to celebrate his time as a Hawk player. And try to do this kind of racial reclamation project on their image. Um, and the Hawks were really good and they were really good with Dominique Wilkins. He wasn't just um, a-, a black representative of the university of Georgia. He was also amazing. If Michael Jordan didn't exist, we would be talking about Dominique Wilkins as one of the greatest players of his generation. And some of us still do. Um, and so, he made basketball fun and he gave white people an excuse to be able to hold on to whatever racial values they continued to hold on to and still feel comfortable enjoying the NBA. And it really does turn the franchise uh, around in a lot of ways. It's not I think historically speaking, it's not the, it's not the turnaround that we would have wanted. We would have wanted some legitimate racial reclamation project. We would have, we would have wanted um, the white ownership or white fans to begrudgingly come around to the fact that black players have just as much value as white players. And therefore we should toss off a lot of our uglier racial stereotypes. That doesn't happen, but Wilkins allows that progression to take place, even though that reclamation doesn't
1: happen. I think. Well, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell the listeners: if you have not seen Dominique Wilkins play, um, go check out YouTube. It's definitely worth a watch. It, Tom's absolutely right. Fantastic player. Um, him and then Spud Webb, right? Right after. Um, right. Excellent. So, yeah. so here's
0: what you want to do: you want to Google Dominique Wilkins Game Seven. Hawks v. Celtics, and then you want to Google Dominique Wilkins dunk contest, and then uh, it will it will it will change your view of the modern game. Well, I'm also
1: fascinated, and, and I think this is a credit credit to you that throughout the book you're able to do an excellent job interweaving um, larger socioeconomic and political context of American society into this work of sports history. Um, and I think you can tell even in your answers that that you're always reminding about the context of what's happening in these places. Um, and, and in your final chapter in particular, you, when you note that the Atlanta Hawks um, kind of decide to construct a, a largely white team and, and um, bank on Pete Maravich, the great white hope, who then the new Orleans jazz, whenever new Orleans gets that NBA franchise, they do the same thing. Uh, they decide to kind of bank on a largely white team over, over talented black players. And also on pistol Pete Maravich coming from Atlanta to new Orleans um, you you make a, a very important point that um, this kind of represented the story of the white South in microcosm, um, sacrificing economic self interest for the sake of white supremacy. Um, so in that context, how do you see the history of Southern basketball and the effort to get pro basketball established in the South fitting into a larger, long standing tension between civic development and progress on one hand, and then White supremacy, on the other hand, uh, in the postbellum South.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the way that they have always thought. I mean, segregation uh, was a terrible idea economically. I mean, you're forcing trains to have two extra train cars. I mean, you're forcing businesses to have extra entrances and extra seats. I mean, it goes against every kind of civic development kind of idea to, to do segregation, and yet reimposing control over Black lives and bodies was so important in the South that they were willing to take these kind of financial hits to uphold white supremacy. This happens at every turn. It's the reason why, God love us, we still look like a third world country today in many respects. It's why we are last in all of the major categories, because we have always done that. We have always seen conservative white politics as being paramount over and against even what of mainline conservative politics would tell you we want we don't we never have a free market in the south it is always controlled by racial issues as much as we gave these kind of bowings to the free market as what we really cared about most we never did that instead we chose to not develop infrastructure on the basis of claiming free markets and instead when it came around to actually doing free market capitalism we completely gave it up for these kind of racial controls It held the South back forever. And frankly, in many ways it still does. And when we get pro sports, it does the same things. For years, the reason we get pro sports in the South is because Atlanta tries to change its image. Atlanta is really the kind of linchpin for getting all of this done. And it's because they have this distorted image of themselves as racial moderates. It is the same kind of um, uh, ethos that gave us Jimmy Carter. And don't get me wrong. I, Jimmy Carter's great. But um, uh, as, as you will see, uh, if anybody uh, listening decides to read the book, you will see that Jimmy Carter wasn't always the rock our church was built on. I mean, uh, one of his, the reason he becomes governor is because he uses the blackness of the Hawks as a cudgel against his opponent and very much race cards uh, the entire NBA to try to weasel his way into the governorship. He becomes great later on, but I mean, he's you know, he's got his own issues as well. And so we're creating this false narrative of progressive whites. Um, it's the same kind of thing that we can see in, let's say, for example, Greensboro, North Carolina, William Chafee's Civilities and Civil Rights, where Greensboro tells itself that since we don't lynch people, we're not really racist. And then sit-ins come along at North Carolina a and and say, well, wait a second, just because you're not killing anybody doesn't mean you're not a racist and that we're not still second-class citizens. And Atlanta's kind of image, White Atlanta's image of itself, feeds its desire to get first baseball, then football, then ultimately basketball. And it is able to kind of tell itself that it's okay, because Hank Aaron is... On the scale of things, largely treated pretty well in Atlanta. He is largely celebrated. And so they can say, well, how could we be racist? We have Hank Aaron. I mean, that becomes kind of the narrative that we've we've done all these these nice things. Oh, by the way, um uh sidebar here. I teach at Valdosta State University in Georgia, and I'm sure all of you are familiar with the home run that Hank Aaron hits that breaks the record and those two white dudes come out of the stands and are like patting him on the back as he walks around. One of those guys is an eye doctor here in Valdosta, Georgia. Uh but do not ask him about it. He doesn't he is not proud of Doing that, and so won't talk about it. But those guys are still around, um, and they actually are right down the street from me as we speak. Um, anyway, this notion of progressive whiteness in the south is going to help drive Atlanta's acquisition of those teams, but that image was obviously false, and it doesn't sell you tickets, and so. Once again, they fall back on placating white interests over and against their better business interests. Because in the long term, it's better for business to be good. It's better for business to play in more playoff games in which you get a higher cut of the revenue. It benefits you to get on national television, and you only do that because you're successful. And instead, they catered to a largely white customer base to whiten a predominantly black team that could have been incredibly successful. The same thing happens in New Orleans when they move to the NBA. The Buccaneers didn't last very long. That was partly a creature of management in New Orleans, but it was also partly a creature of the problems in the ABA. They finally do get their NBA team, the New Orleans Jazz, less because They desperately needed a a basketball team to validate themselves, and more because the new arena that they had just built for their football team needed more dates, needed to fill that arena for more than eight times a year, as the NFL only does. And so we get the Jazz largely to fill the Superdome and to help pay rent on the Superdome. And again, they know that if they're going to make that work, they've got to have some kind of transcendent white player that'll bring in fans. Who better than the star of the Atlanta Hawks and more importantly, the star of the beloved LSU Tigers, um, Pete Maravich, a white guy who counts as a local and we're going to bring him in and have him be the guy. And of course, just like in Atlanta, that completely doesn't work. Um Don't get me wrong. I I, I do not mean to bag on Pistol Pete at all. I grew up in Louisiana and I grew up being told that Pistol Pete Maravich was part deity. I mean, I and I I still very much believe it. Um, uh, I I think he is one of the greatest basketball players ever. Mm but he doesn't really fit with the NBA style of play that was going on in that time period. He never makes the playoffs. He's not, he's not a team kind of guy. I mean, LSU sucked while he was there. He was just really good. He doesn't really fit into the, the, the modern concept of team basketball. And so savant or not, he wasn't what that team needed. They needed good team players And they needed people they could afford at a relatively low salary that would be willing to sacrifice for the team. Instead, they were they sacrificed their entire future for Pete Maravich, giving up all these draft picks to Atlanta, an expansion franchise, giving up all their expansion draft picks to an established team just so they could get the famous white guy. And again, any business imperative would tell you that is not the way to go. That is not how to do business. But just as Louisiana had decided in New Orleans in 1890 that separate train cars were going to be the way they did things, even though the train companies were telling them not to, the case that ultimately gave us Plessy versus Ferguson, the same thing is going to happen here two generations later or three generations later when these white leaders say, well, we could actually make this a viable business or we could play to this mythical white fan that they're expecting to come to the games and watch a team that isn't good but that happens to have white players. And, of course, it turns out that doesn't happen because even if you are white and even if you are racist, you still want your team to win, and that simply doesn't happen. And it becomes even more stark for New Orleans because they're not playing in the Omni, the stadium that Atlanta built for its Hawks, a stadium that was built for basketball and ultimately for hockey as well, a stadium that fit 17,000 people, a kind of regular amount of people for basketball. The Superdome does not seat 17,000 people. The Superdome seats approximately 3 billion people. And when you have only 1,500 people come to your games, it is only amplified by the fact that you're playing in this gigantic cavernous arena that was really designed for football. And it's only going to point out, um, just kind of in highlighter, the inefficacies of the way the white South has done business from time immemorial. And, you know, I started this little thing with segregation, but we could go back even farther than that. I mean, the South had a feudal economy before the Civil War, specifically because these white people were propping up slavery, which was terrible for business. It wasn't good. It only benefited the people who had them. And so the South has always used race as a cudgel against its own best interests. And its experience with pro sports has been, frankly, no different Um, And again, I think maybe the big change there might be the 1980s because of uh, Dominique Wilkins and then towards the end of the 80s when the Braves started actually amassing the kind of talent that would make them really matter in the 1990s. But until then, I mean, the South was always an also-ran, even when it did get professional sports, and that's largely the reason.
1: And, and you kind of, and, and we mentioned, we talked about the Dominique Wilkins, obviously, like you mentioned in the 80s, but um, I do like how um, this is obviously a, a struggle, a story of struggle in many respects, this tension between civic progress and just quite not being able to get over these white supremacist views, but you do close um, on a, a somewhat optimistic note that by the 1980s, uh, the Deep South had embraced basketball and in many ways, um, I think I'm quoting you here, reputation could finally trump a race in Southern civic engagement and everyone could go watch a game. Um, so with that said, what does your book tell us about the power of sports to instigate progress specifically?
0: It absolutely plays a role because everybody likes to be associated with winning. And I mean, it's the reason why the South cares so much about um the SEC. It's not because I mean, the vast majority of people who fill our SEC stadiums uh, every week uh, did not go to those schools and in most cases hate those schools and see them as a bastion of liberal thought in a sea uh, of white Southern conservatism. Excuse me, there are dogs going crazy over here. Um, they go because, historically speaking, the South had always been and also ran in everything because of all those things we just talked about until 1926, when Alabama goes out to the Rose Bowl and wins and all of a sudden, sports starts to matter to white Southerners in a way that it never had before because now they could show, hey, wait a second, this is something we're good at. When, Atlanta, when when Alabama came back from the Rose Bowl in 26, they stopped along the way, starting in East Texas at every stop and there were people waiting for them with flowers to give them to say that they thank you for defending the South. And ever since that moment, In a place that's last in economics, that's last in every other, in education, last in every other category, to be able to be first in something mattered in a very big way. And once the South, white South, started to see that sports is a contest that you don't have to be wealthy to win that you don't have to be educated to win. They realize that this can be kind of a marker of our Sunbelt business development in a way that nobody's going to notice some corporation that wants to sell in the Caribbean. And so they're going to set up shop in Mobile, but they will notice the success of sports teams they will notice that the South is no longer for minor league baseball and for spring training and for things like that, but that it actually has some kind of valid thing to offer the rest of the country.
1: Well, Tom, I, I do want you to correct me if I'm if I'm going too far here, but al- although you don't say it explicitly, I, I see your book as kind of an indictment on the crowd that is always clamoring to keep politics or larger social issues out of sports. And and we see that, of course, um, partially with the when they have Black Lives Matter on the court. You know, some people were upset by that. Um, and then others were obviously that's that's a great issue to, to take a stance on. So how does your book emphasize that the two um, cannot be placed in two separate spheres? That's politics, social issues and sports.
0: Right. And we always have to remember that those people who are arguing that NBA players shouldn't take a stand against racial discrimination are essentially doing something political by making that demand. And so I think the way that politics and sports has always worked from a a fan perspective, especially from a white Southern fan perspective, is, is that we are allowed to dictate policy about what sports should be. But the players themselves uh, should not, and they very much have a shut up and dribble attitude for the players themselves. There is a double standard there, but that shouldn't be unique. And that's that's always been kind of the way that has been. I mean, every single Saturday um, in the SEC, we have ninety thousand relatively wealthy white people um, standing around and cheering for uh, two hundred. Uh, black youths who do not get paid for their services I mean so I mean this has always been a problem that exists uh, in sports but in especially in southern sports where politics stops at the water's edge of who buys a ticket and their argument has always been that your political statement is allowed if you paid something for it it is very much a kind of a Karen moment where uh, I, I bought a ticket so I'm allowed to say this I'm allowed to bring a sign that says John 316 I'm allowed to bring an American flag or something like that, all of which are inherently political acts. But if the players themselves try to incorporate any of that into their own platform, then somehow they are breaking the bounds of decorum by doing so. Um, That was very much there in the 1960s, and it's still very much there today. Um, It is less a creature of a certain time and more a creature of how we think about participation, how we think about the rights we get from our own purchases and the kind of the, the customer driven way that we, we consider um, everything to be driven. This whole customer is always right thing. And in this scenario, the customers are the white people who are saying these things and the people that they're trying to explain that they're always right to are the players themselves. Um, that, some, that sometimes gets lost because the players have so much more money and such a larger platform than the, than the customers. But it really is a very similar phenomenon to those kinds of things that we see in other areas of life. And it very much goes back to the fact that uh, that, that same narrative that we discussed, the South is always um, sacrificing its own uh, economic best interest for the sake of its particular white supremacist politics. Um, that that very much is a legacy, I think, of that and has never really gone away.
1: Well, Tom, we've taken up a lot of your time, but but before we go, um, I'd like, like, I'm sure the readers would like to as well, know if uh, there's any projects that you've completed since Dixie Ball or that you're currently working on that we can kind of be on the lookout for.
0: Yeah, um, uh, sports things. Yes. Uh, so um, after Dixie Ball, I published a book called Hoops, which is a broader study of the entire history of basketball, college pro men, women, going all the way back from the beginning to the present, kind of a broad overview of the whole game, uh, which really hadn't been done before to see college pro men and women, uh, white and black, all be in one volume together to see how basketball itself as a concept um, developed over time. And that goes all the way up into to kind of the bubble contests with with the the kneeling and the Black Lives Matter shirts and all of that kind of stuff. Also, if you're interested specifically in sports coming to the South next year, I think maybe late this year, but probably early next year, I'm not sure. I have a book coming out um, on the arrival of the NHL to the Deep South. Um, In particular, the Atlanta Flames uh, I, am, I am still very much a Calgary Flames fan today, largely because they were our first Southern team. And it is very much another racial story as well, if you're going to bring in an all-Black team to to represent the South, even though no one in the South had ever seen hockey before, knew any of the rules. At least all the players were white. And so right after we get pro basketball coming to the South, they start to bring in hockey Um, and they start to try to sell this game that no one had ever seen. But we promise you, everybody skating will be white. And, And so we talk about the This book will talk about the impetus for bringing hockey to the South and the racial consequences for both the NHL and for the South itself and how hockey comes around in the region as well. Well,
1: it it does sound like you have something for everybody here, because if you're if you're a fan of basketball, um, (laughs) I obviously (laughs) highly recommend picking up Dixie Ball. But then also it sounds like the Hoops book. And then if you're a fan of hockey, um, especially a Southern fan of hockey, which fortunately more and more are, are emerging, right? <laughs> not, not as many of us as I would like, but yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: we, we do exist. Right.
1: Well, you can, you can be on the lookout of, of um, Tom's new book, Forthcoming. But um, I, you know, I, I found this to be a fascinating conversation, Tom, and I really appreciate your time. Um, so thank you so much. And, and uh, thanks again for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.